Hi everyone and welcome to episode 59 of SAMA, a webinar series where experts talk about their area of expertise. This week we're lucky to have Dr. Wendy Pogozelski with us to talk about changing paradigms in nutrition. Yeah, Dr. Wendy Pogozelski received her Bachelor of Science in Chemistry from Chatham University and a PhD from the John Hopkins University. She was in the Office of Naval Research Postdoctoral Fellow at the Naval Research Lab in Washington, D.C. In 1996, Wendy came to Geneseo, where she now holds the rank of Distinguished Teaching Professor and serves as Chair of the Chemistry Department. In her laboratory work, Wendy and her students investigate the effects of radiation on mitochondria. That must be another topic we have to talk about, Wendy. Uh, since developing an interest in the biochemistry of nutrition, Wendy has been working with an international group of scientists and clinicians who are trying to bridge the gulf between scientific research and nutrition education. Wendy, welcome to SAMA. Thank you for accepting our invitation. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So tell me, Wendy, why is there a need for a change in our views of nutrition? Well, I think that the previous nutritional guidelines haven't gotten us to a good spot. So presumably everybody has an interest in nutrition, and yet we have skyrocketing type 2 diabetes, and we have skyrocketing obesity, and things like cancer around the rise. And um, although cardiovascular mortality is going down, there is still are, is an increase in cardiovascular events. And this is also spreading across the world. Right. So although we've gotten much better at food distribution and food availability and maybe um, food prices are fairly stable in, in many countries, not all, but many. So that's been an advance. And it's good that fewer people are going hungry, but we have some other problems. And um, so I think, um, and as our tools to study nutrition have gotten better, um, I think we've gotten more information. And with that information has come a change in the way that we view um, the kinds of foods that are healthy. A fact which came to light in the recent SAMA is the fact that doctors receive so little nutritional education as part of their course. Absolutely. And that's changing a little bit as um, more physicians, especially family physicians, are realizing that maybe half of their patients are type 2 diabetics. Um, they're having to kind of upgrade their understanding of nutrition. It hasn't been a traditional part of the medical school curriculum, but I'm kind of sympathetic to that because doctors learn an awful lot and, you know, our knowledge is expanding and it's harder to get more and more stuff into that curriculum but I think uh, it really does have to change that there has to be a little bit um, more information and what I'm trying to do in my classes is really integrate my teaching of biochemistry with nutrition so sort of use nutrition as an application for the biochemistry and that way students use they really learn both wonderful now I believe you have a presentation for us right to walk us through Okay, so this is what you've requested, so um, I'm happy to do it this way, but stop me and take me down some tangents if you wish, or I'm happy to answer questions along the way, or if I'm going too basic, you know, you can tell me that I'm going too basic and can skip some things, but okay. yes, I'm happy to do that. Okay, so if I click on this share button. Wonderful. 
Okay. And so now is it appearing? Uh, now it's looking great. Okay, great. Okay. So one of the first things that I want to say is that I'm not a doctor. My role is to just be an educator. So I don't want to give specific medical advice because that's really between patients and their doctors. But I do think that we can use the literature to inform and uh, to learn about things. But my philosophy actually comes from Dr. Gerald Reven, who is the person who came up with the term metabolic syndrome. And he passed away very recently, but um, he worked at Stanford. And what he said is, what we need is more information and less advice. So I kind of um, make my philosophy based on that idea. So we all know that nutrition advice is confusing and it's absolutely conflicting. So um, we're definitely affected by marketing. And so if you were to just look at some magazine covers and then just one day uh, took a snapshot, <laughs> you would find things that are completely opposite. So um, things that say you should be vegan, things about uh, baked potato dinners that protect against diabetes. Um, I like you know, the one at the top right. Di beat diabetes and it's got a pile of pancakes, a pie <laughs> Yes. It's got maple syrup pouring on it. It's sugar, sugar plus. It's <laughs> good. Exactly. So I just uh, cringe when I walk by some of these uh, magazine covers. <laughs> I guess, you know, pictures of Brussels sprouts don't sell as well or something. Um, oh, but yes, it's really bad. And then the books are almost just as bad because the books say completely opposite things. You know, pro-fat, anti-fat, pro-carb, anti-carb. So, um, the reason that we're in this state is that um, initially a lot of the nutrition work was done by epidemiologists. So people who are just sort of looking at trends and populations, and um, this is useful in some respects, but the variables are really hard to control. And what you get primarily out of that is associations. So eating this is associated with this, and there might be a link or there might not be a link. Um, and one of the reasons that we sometimes have to rely on that data is because doing really good nutrition research is pretty expensive. You have to you know, put people in wards or control their diets or feed them, and um, all of those things are expensive to do. Um, and as we talked about, um, sometimes even dietitians, nutritionists, um, aren't really trained in biochemistry. And so I don't mean to sound critical of them, um, you know, very, very useful, but um, I think that their training, um, if it included more biochemistry, they could kind of keep up with the biochemistry a little bit better. And then doctors being trained or trained in nutrition could um, also keep up. So, and then of course, the other problem is that politics enters into a lot of this and of course, ideology and culture and all of these things can compete. Mm. Um, and then also, sometimes the outcomes that people look for are really multifactorial. So if you're looking at death, okay? Um, lots of reasons that people die. You know, it's more than maybe just, you know, one thing that they ate. So um, a lot of times, really, all we have are weak studies in that way. So what I um, generally say that if we're going to discern good information from bad information, the thing that we need to do is really understand the physiology of the body and the biochemistry and base our discernment of good nutritional advice based on that. And then also really be data-driven and not money-driven. A lot of the initial um, nutritional research was funded by food companies. And there is very good documentation of some of these food companies throwing out the studies that they didn't like and just including the studies that they did like. 
Um, and then also what really factors in here is clinical experience. And I correspond with a bunch of people who um, work with patients for diabetes and for obesity and uh, various kinds of things. And their clinical experience really um, factors into this. Um, okay, and as we said, you know, we have really made a lot of gains in people um, not being malnourished um, over, you know, in, in general. Um, so we still have uh, areas for improvement there, but um, we still have these other problems. And one of the big problems, of course, is that obesity has increased greatly. So this is an interesting uh, graph. So it's um, shown by year. So the top graph being um, the more aged, the middle being the um, younger, and the bottom being the really young. And in all populations, obesity has increased. Now, some people would really like to point out that when the United States came up with its dietary guidelines in 1980, that obesity took off. And so I don't think we can really say that those guidelines caused obesity because there were a lot of things happening. Um, the advent of computers and um, you know, increased use of pesticides and you know, probably multifactorial, um, many reasons for um, obesity. But we all know that calories have gone up and we know that exercise has gone down. Right. Um, and then also about 10 years after that, um, the rates of type 2 diabetes absolutely skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. So probably related to the increase in obesity, probably related to the increase in calories, but also the increased food availability, um, I think increased snacking really contributed and then decreased exercise. Um, and then right now in the US at least, we're in a pretty bad situation where about one in four people over 65 has type 2 diabetes, and about one in 10 or one in 11 adults has type 2 diabetes. One and then four. another portion is pre-diabetic. One in four. Of, yes, of senior citizens, yes. Oh, okay, wow. So, yeah, not, not good. No. But this is also a worldwide problem. So uh, type 2 diabetes is increasing in um, developing the developing world in um, countries where you would never have um, expected it to increase. Mm. Um, okay, so um, one of the things that I like to do in my classes is sort of start with a little bit of a quiz to say, you know, um, so what's your starting point for knowledge? So what do you know? And so this is my colleague, uh, Richard Feynman from SUNY Downstate Medical School. Um, he and I have collaborated um, on a number of different projects. And so he teaches medical students, and I teach um, undergraduates, but yet we use a lot of the same approaches. So here's one of the questions that he asks his medical students before they begin talking about nutrition. Now, in this case, Dr. Feynman's students do get a good uh, education in nutrition. But he says this, during the epidemic of obesity and diabetes, the macronutrient that increased most was A, carbohydrate, B, fat, C, protein, or D, all about the same. And when he asked his students this, about half of them, column A there, said A, uh, carbohydrate, but another almost half said that all about the same, that calories decreased um, across the board. And if we look at the data from um, NHANES, so this is, um, let me think what this is. This stands for the National Health, anyway, it's a survey, uh, survey service that began in the 1960s to track, um, um, I believe it's about 500,000 people a year. Um, I could be wrong on that particular number, but it tracks what they eat. And 
Um, and then if you look at these particular um, graphs, one shows the data for men and the other shows the data for women, um, you can see that what increased was carbohydrate. So fat stayed the same. So that's that line at the bottom. Yes, um, it seems to have dropped for the ladies and, oh, sorry, for the men and risen a little bit for the women, but it's pretty much kept stable. That's yeah. right. Yes, exactly. But carbohydrate really did increase. Yeah. yeah. So this is one of the things that led the um, USDA to um, set some, some guidelines. And so their first set of guidelines was focused on reducing fat and then increasing things like whole grains. And then they kept updating it. So there have been 12 iterations um, since, but not much change. Recently, um, the call to drop cholesterol was dropped. Um, there's been more focus on reducing simple sugars, but in general, not a whole lot of change. And they've come up with different um, arrangements or different graphics, um, but most everybody is familiar with the food pyramid that had the grains at the bottom, meaning you'd have the most of the grains um, all the way up to fats, which would be um, at the top use the, using the least. Now they've gone to this food pyramid that I don't find as obvious. No, it's, um, it's like a mess. It looks like um, when you do your shopping and you come home, you just throw everything on the kitchen floor. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly, yes. I don't find it to be a very strong graphic. <laughs> right. No, but um, I also notice the amount of... Well, I understand the one on the left. I don't understand the one on the right. But the one on the left shows... The baseline is carbohydrates, the very thing that's increased over the years, which right. is looking like it's, it's the spoken gun for obesity. That's what a lot of people believe. Okay. Yes. Gosh. Um, so another question that um, I ask my students, and this, is, this one was actually one that my husband asked his classes for fun. He's a physics professor. Um, so which of the following nutrients are optional? for humans, A, water, B, fat, C, salt, B, carbohydrates, E, protein, F, vitamins, or G, none of the above. Well, it's obvious, isn't it? It's water because you can survive off beer. <laughs> well, <laughs> I see. Am I right or am I right? Well, um, we'll skip that. <laughs> we'll move on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But you can see what the students thought. The students thought that, um, fat was going to be um, largely um, optional. Yes. Um, but some of them also thought that carbs um, were, you, you couldn't do without carbohydrates. Um, and then um, some of them had carbs as the only answer, but still there were, there were responses um, across the board. And of course, we all know that um, the response there is one that is optional is carbohydrates. So there is no known dietary requirement for carbohydrate, um, but there are for the others. So um, the thing about carbohydrate um, that some people don't realize is that regardless of the kind of carbohydrate, it's made of glucose, it's made of sugar, whether it's complex carbohydrate or um, any other, um, whether it's um, other, other kinds of simple sugars. Now, some simple sugars will have other um, sugars attached. Sucrose has glucose and fructose, but by and large, all of our carbohydrates are glucose. Um, and the body makes glucose from other sources. So although um, we can take it in dietarily, the body can also make it from other things, from certain amino acids and from the glycerol part of fats. So if we're going to understand um, this obesity and diabetes epidemic, we really need to know how insulin works. And the way to really understand 
insulin, I think, is to study it in the context of type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So um, one of the things that I often say is that really should be diabetes is because there isn't really one disease called diabetes. There are several uh, kinds of diabetes. But what they have in common is they all have high blood sugar. So, and then all of them involve some sort of malfunction in how the hormone insulin is working. So type one diabetics, of which I am one, um, just have insufficient insulin. So that's usually an autoimmune attack on the pancreatic beta cells that make insulin. And so type ones just aren't making enough and they have to supplement with extra insulin. And then type two is usually some sort of insulin sen insensitivity or what we call insulin resistance. So the body is making insulin, but cells aren't responding to it. Um, it can be different organs that are not responding. They might respond differently. Um, there can be insulin sensitivity in muscle, in fat, in liver, and that interplay will affect the severity of the disease. And then, of course, there can be a combination. So as people age, a lot of times they will have less insulin secretion. Um, and then if you combine that with insulin, ins uh, insulin resistance, then you sort of have a combination of insulin insufficiency and insulin resistance. But all in common, they have abnormally high blood sugar. Okay. So far, so good? Yep, nothing like yet. Okay, okay. So I think what's useful is to look at what a normal blood sugar is before and after a meal. So that would be that green line here at the bottom. So at time zero, there on the left, um, you can see that, um, and I realize I used American units here, and I should have used more international units, but um, 85 milligrams per deciliter, and I believe that's about four, um, multiplied by 18, or divided by 4.4, yeah, about 4.7 millimolar is um, a normal blood sugar. Okay. And then as you go across, so this would be hours after the start of the meal is the x-axis there. And so, of course, as the food is digested and the glucose is absorbed from that broken down food, that's absorbed into the bloodstream. And so the blood glucose level goes up. And so in a normal person, it might go up to about 120 an hour after a meal. But then insulin is secreted in response to that, and so the blood sugar goes down and returns to normal within two hours. Mm. Now, in a type 2 diabetic, they could very likely be starting at a much higher blood sugar, um, even in their fasting state. Mm. So in this example, the person is starting off around 130 milligrams per deciliter, and I'll just convert that to international units. So that would be about 7.2 millimolar. And then um, the blood sugar can easily go up to 100. Um, that's not uncommon in a type 2 but diabetic. It could be even higher. And then it takes a lot longer to come down because the insulin just isn't working as well. And then it might even not ever return to normal. Okay. So it's not atypical for comparing, comparing a normal person with a type 2 diabetic. So what's wrong with that? Well, um, for one thing, glucose is very reactive. And so it reacts with proteins and it kind of gums them up and makes them sticky. One of the proteins that gets affected is hemoglobin, which is the protein that carries oxygen from your lungs to your cells and then also carries carbon dioxide and some other things back to your lungs. Um, so if your hemoglobin is what's called glycated, if the glucose sticks to it, it just doesn't work as well. And where it works the least well is in the extremities. 
So that would be the toes, um, fingertips to some extent, but mainly the feet. And so um, one of the consequences of uncontrolled high blood sugar is that people will have their nerve cells die in their feet because the oxygen uh, delivery has been compromised by the glycated hemoglobin. Um, the uh, LDL receptor, that's, um, I won't really get into that yet, but that would be something that helps cholesterol get into cells that can become glycated. Another problem is that um, the body tries to dilute this high blood sugar. So water kind of runs out of cells and um, this is why some of the symptoms of high blood sugar would be increased urination, increased thirst. Um, the high blood sugar damages blood vessels, um, causes oxidative stress. Um, this excess sugar can also feed bacteria. So people with high blood sugar are often really susceptible to things like urinary tract infections or colds um, or anything that's, whether it's a virus or a bacteria. Well, maybe if we have time, maybe talk later about reflux because if you have kind of a bacterial overgrowth then you might have excess fermentation and that releases gases that then kind of send gases back into your um, stomach and esophagus. So you get reflux disease. You get inflammation from this high blood sugar, and that drives cardiovascular disease. So the downstream effects are, are disastrous. Um, amputations, people having to go on dialysis because their kidneys become damaged. Their eyes are very often affected. The eyes are very susceptible to um, uh, high glucose damage. Cardiovascular disease, all of these things are um, upregulated. So, so far so good? Okay. So of course, the biggest contribution to this high blood sugar would be carbohydrate and the diet. And so one of my colleagues talks about carbohydrate as glucose waiting to happen. Good way to think about it. So carbohydrates are just glucose molecules strung together. And what your body does is break down those bonds between the glucose molecules and then releases them to the blood where they're carried to the cells to be made into what you use for energy. Um, so the other contributions besides the dietary carbohydrate would be the stored glycogen that you have. So in the liver and in the muscle, your body strings those glucoses back together to make kind of a really the similar thing to starch. Um, uh, and then, of course, in times of energy need, that, glu that glycogen will be broken down to glucose, um, sent into the bloodstream and used by the cells. And then the third contribution is that the liver will actually make glucose. So this is a process called gluconeogenesis, and it really means making new glucose. Oh, I never knew that. So your body can actually make glucose from... Absolutely. So in fact, if you were to, um, you know, unfortunately get stranded on some, you know, remote desert island, and you would go, you know, many, many days fasting, your blood sugar would stay almost the same as a person between meals um, in, a, in a normal um, environment. So your body, um, you know, there'd be a little bit of a drop, of course, but your, your body would make glucose and it would really keep things at that level of really close to 85 milligrams per deciliter. Isn't the body so that's kind of amazing. Across the world, everybody sort of has the same fasting glucose, at least in the normal state. Wow, I never knew. Mm -hmm. Great. So one of the things we also have to understand is that um, that glucose has to get into cells. So the body doesn't want to keep it there in the bloodstream. It wants it to get into cells. And to get into cells, it has to have sort of a channel or a door. And so what that is is a transport protein. And in some cells, there's a channel that's just always open. Blood cells 
just keep that open to glucose. But other cells um, use insulin to regulate the amount of glucose that goes in. So liver, um, sorry, fat and muscle, um, I'll use um, uh, a special kind of insulin receptor that then activates a glucose receptor that's bound uh, or uh, sequestered inside the cell. And so this is a little um, diagram that will show insulin binding to the receptor. And then the glucose receptor in the fat and muscle then migrates to the outside and lets in the glucose. So if I click, you can see the insulin binding to the receptor. That activates the glucose receptor, which moves to the outside of the cell, and it opens. And so now there's a pore for the glucose to come into the cell. Okay, But all of that really depends on insulin binding to the insulin receptor. And obviously, if there isn't any insulin, then that's not going to happen. And so muscle and cells won't take in glucose. Um, or if for some reason um, insulin might bind to the receptor, but all of those downstream reactions that activate the glucose receptor, if they aren't happening, then the um, cells won't take in the glucose. Wow. So is that clear? Absolutely. So now, I wouldn't, excuse me, this wouldn't be a photograph of a microscope slide, would it? Because they don't have labels on the parts of the cell. <laughs> <laughs> right. If only. <laughs> if only we could see things this clearly, yes. But it does make things very easy to understand. Your illustration is great. Okay. Um, so, so that would be one of the functions of insulin is to really unlock um, that door and um, help the glucose to enter the fat and the muscle cells. So the fat and muscle is where you really need to have that really well regulated. But insulin is also an activator and an inhibitor of lots of things. So um, one of the things that we say is that it puts the brakes on this gluconeogenesis process. So your body usually doesn't make its own glucose if you've ingested a whole lot. So insulin says to the liver, whoa, 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 we don't need to make any more glucose. Um, it also inhibits the breakdown of fat from fat cells. So after a meal, your insulin goes up. And then it says, you know, hang on, fat cells. You can keep what you have. We have new food coming in. We don't need to break down um, any more fat. It does other things too. So it stimulates cell growth. And this is one of the reasons why too much insulin actually correlates with increased risk of cancer. Wow. All right. And so then just to review the differences between the type 1 and the type 2 diabetes. So it's really the type 2 diabetes that's the um, big nutritional problem or medical problem that we have to deal with these days. Although type one is also on the rise because it's autoimmune and autoimmune diseases in general are on the rise. Um, type two is about 90% of the diabetes case. So type one is usually diagnosed in um, childhood or youth, although about 10% of cases, up to a quarter of cases are actually diagnosed in adulthood. Um, my kind was actually diagnosed at age 40. Um, but in any case, remember, we, type 1 is too little insulin, and type 2 is when the cells become uh, insensitive to insulin. But initially, what will happen in the type 2 diabetes is that there's this resistance, and so initially, the body will turn out more insulin. And so that state of high blood glucose and high insulin is really uh, bad for the body. Okay, so one of the things that I really like to demonstrate, though, is that insulin is a very powerful hormone. And here is a picture of one of the very first children to be given insulin um, back when um, Banting and Vest and McLeod and Collip um, developed the use of, of insulin. So um, this is from a 1922 paper. He wasn't the very first person to receive it, but one of the early 
um, people to receive it. And so the picture on the left um, and the right, this is the same boy. And there's only a three month difference between these two states. So Remarkable. the boy on the left, you know, in, in that state, um, he was clearly dying. Um, his muscles and fat were completely wasting away as the body was desperately trying to break down its reserves um, to generate energy because um, it just couldn't use the glucose. The glucose wasn't getting into cells. But three months after being administered insulin, um, you can see he's looking very, very healthy. Sure. So, um, yeah, I just find that picture very moving every, every time I see it. Yes. Um, and how indebted we are to the people who developed mm. insulin. So one of the things, too, that's important to understand is that insulin is released at the rate at which blood glucose goes up. So if you have lots of carbohydrate and lots of glucose and it's really quickly absorbed, you're gonna get lots of insulin. So one of the things that spikes insulin the most is sugared sodas or, or uh, soft drinks. So these are liquids, so they are absorbed really quickly. Um, the fact that they have um, glucose and sometimes fructose as well, um, it's, just, it's absorbed very, very quickly. And that kind of quick rise leads to a lot of insulin. Um, now, if you have fat in the diet, you really don't get much insulin stimulation. Protein, a little bit. Some of the branch chain amino acids have a mechanism where they'll stimulate production of, of insulin, but with protein, you also get stimulation of this counter-regulatory hormone called glucagon, and that really does the opposite of insulin. So the net result is that um, insulin goes up a little bit to help amino acids get into cells, but then it also um, kind of stimulates the glucagon, which puts the brakes on the insulin. Okay, so um, one of the things that's so bad about type 2 diabetes, though, is that when the person is resistant to insulin, and then they're in this feedback mechanism to make more insulin, um, a couple of things are happening. The body can't break down fat, you know, in general. So um, I'm simplifying a little bit here. But um, insulin really inhibits this enzyme called hormone-sensitive lipase. And so the ability to break down fat is somewhat reduced. So that means cells aren't getting the energy from fat. And there's a feedback mechanism. And so this stimulates the brain that says, whoa, I'm hungry here. Um, feed me. So the person is hyperinsulinemic, extra insulin that's driving uh, cell growth and it's driving fat storage and it's inhibiting fat breakdown. But then also they're hungry in many cases. And so maybe they have a little bit of obesity to start with. And then the type 2 diabetes kind of compounds the obesity and then the person is hungry, so the chances of reducing the obesity, it's, it just becomes a very complicated um, system. Um, also, type two diabetes is really just the tip of the iceberg. So once someone has high blood sugar due to insulin resistance, they have lots of other things as well. So dyslipidemia, um, the body's production of lipids and the carriers for lipids kind of gets out of whack. Um, it also tends to go along with high blood pressure. Um, so there's this cluster of diseases is what we call metabolic syndrome. Okay. okay. Oh, why am I going forward? Okay. So the other thing that we need to understand then is how food is going to impact this rise in blood glucose. And despite everything that we hear about healthy whole grains, et cetera, 
Um, the impact of a piece of whole wheat bread can be very, very similar to the impacts of candy. So um, clearly, you know, the candy isn't going to have some other vitamins and things in it. Um, but uh, by and large, um, bread is broken down at a very high rate and um, raises blood sugar significantly. All right, but here's where we can get a feel for how these different foods will affect blood sugar. So if you look at the key there, you can see we're comparing glucose, just pure glucose. And so obviously that's gonna be absorbed the quickest and lead to the highest and quickest rise in blood sugar. But now we can look at the one that's next, which is the potato. And the potato still has carbohydrate that's broken down pretty quickly. Um, not terribly different really from the pure glucose. Is Oatmeal is that purple. Right? Amazing that potatoes, we always thought it's like a whole food. It's got all the right. <sighs> yes. It's and high in glucose. Yes, this will differ, you know, in, in certain kinds of people. And in and this study was done in eight different type two diabetics. So the blood sugar is probably going up higher than it would in a normal person. But oh, yeah. it certainly shows you the impact um, of the food. Mm. And it really is, um, you know, rice is kind of intermediate, and it's really only when we get down to the super high fiber carbohydrates that we see only a moderate rise in blood sugar. So the lentils and the kidney beans would be those uh, lower too. Okay. Um, still make blood sugar rise a little bit, but not nearly as much as the potato and oatmeal. Okay, so another thing we have to consider though is that although blood sugar goes up, it also has to come down. and to really understand this interplay between food and insulin and blood sugar, we really need to understand this fact. So the body is very good at um, sensing how much the blood sugar is rising and then secreting just the right amount of insulin. And if it gets too much, then it secretes glucagon and, and adrenaline and these other hormones. But it might not be perfect. So um, the blood sugar goes up insulin um, is released, and then sometimes it'll be a little bit too much, and the blood sugar will go down. So blood sugar can go below normal, and we've all experienced that, I'm sure, because we've experienced headaches and maybe a little shaking or um, maybe some extreme hunger, and we're saying, you know, what's going on? I just ate two hours ago, but that would be um, our blood sugar uh, dropping. And we also sometimes get a little cranky, um, and especially in children. So um, one of the things that people have observed is that a blood sugar crash in, crash in children seems to release a little bit more adrenaline. And so the idea of kids maybe being hyperactive after a sugar meal, it isn't so much due to the sugar as it may be due to the blood sugar drop um, from the adrenaline. Right. And so adrenaline um, obviously gives us extra, extra energy, but it sometimes also makes us feel shaky and anxious. Mm. Um, and sort of gives us these feelings of anxiety. The other thing, though, is that if blood sugar drops too low, it's dangerous. And although I really refrain from trying to give advice, this is one piece of advice that I will give because it's extremely important. So if somebody is taking insulin, all right, so they're getting insulin injections, and they're eating a certain number of carbohydrates a day that meets that insulin, those insulin needs, if they suddenly reduce their calories or reduce their carbohydrate, they have to match that by lowering their insulin doses. And so you might need, people might need the help of their physician in doing that. You really have to sort of titrate them down carefully because you don't want your blood sugar to go too low. 
So too much insulin, there's a blood sugar crash. And this picture that I have here, I don't know if you ever saw the film Steel Magnolias, American film um, from a long time ago, but it has Julia Roberts in it. And the Julia Roberts character is a type one diabetic. And in the beauty shop, she has a blood sugar crash and people rush her some orange juice to try to raise her blood sugar to normal levels. So that's what that picture is about. But the point is that it is dangerous. And so you, if you're on insulin, you have to be really, really careful. Insulin can be dangerous stuff. Okay. okay. Um, so far so good? Am I? Yes, no, it's great. Was that film focusing on diabetics? Sorry? The, the, um, was it Steel Magnolia? Was that a film that focused on or drew attention to diabetes? Well, I think it was a, a side theme. Okay. So there was a lot going on in the film. Okay. And I think, you know, for interest, you know, the character um, was a type 1 diabetic and okay. um, ultimately had some kidney damage and things. So, um, yeah. Um, but it wasn't, I wouldn't call it a central theme of, okay. of the plot. Yeah. Right. Um, so we know that type 2 diabetes is associated with obesity. And there are several theories about this. And there are good, there's good data to suggest all of these theories. So, um, you know, multiple things can be contributing to this state. But one of the things that's known is that um, if people have more abdominal fat as opposed to fat other places, it's more of a risk factor. So they talk about the apple shape being more of a risk factor than the pear shape. So um, abdominal fat is known to be just a little bit better for reasons that I don't completely understand at recruiting these immune cells called uh, macrophages. And then these macrophages um, promote this um, systemic inflammation, so inflammation all throughout the body, and they're recruiting other kinds of hormones um, such as prostaglandins, and um, the body just winds up being in this inflammatory state. Another thing that can happen is that if, liver, um, if the liver accumulates fat, um, then this will prevent proper function of insulin in the liver cells, um, and then there are lots of downstream risks for this. Okay. So um, now we can kind of get into comparing various kinds of diets. Um, but do you have any questions? Uh, no, I or found the previous graphic quite interesting. But uh, no, no, no questions. We're okay. All right. On. So um, in America, we have this organization called the American Diabetes Association, and traditionally they have promoted a fairly high carbohydrate diet. So they've wanted people to avoid. Um, heart disease, and so they've recommended that people avoid fat, but they've still wanted people to have a diet that's very similar to the normal food pyramid. So for example, um, this is you know, from a, a website. Um, uh, they acknowledge that the more carbs you eat, the higher your blood glucose goes, but then they say eat six to eight servings of these foods that give you high glucose. It's, it's and, a, a conflict of information, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, so it's a little bit controversial here, but um, I believe that this is not the best advice. Okay. Um, so we, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but, um, and yeah, I, the American Diabetes Association is um, beginning to embrace um, some alternatives to this um, at the moment is my understanding, is my feeling, but this has traditionally been their stance. Have you created your own pyramid? Sorry? Have you created your own food pyramid? 
I, I would say basically, yes. Um, so the, the way that I eat is a little bit more based on, I'd say, um, kinds of uh, protein. Yes. And, um, but not excessive because protein is very satiating. And so you really don't have to eat a lot of it to feel satisfied. And then um, I don't really regulate the amount of fat that I eat. Um, I just, again, I find fat to be fairly satiating and I, you know, don't drown my salads in salad dressing or, um, well, you know, maybe a little excess olive oil, but, uh, you know, in general, I um, really kind of let the, the fat just fall uh, where, where it satisfies me. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, um, one of the things that's been controversial about the ADA and about some of the, um, uh, organizations in other countries as well, um, is that they've had this approach of crank up the blood sugar and then use drugs to bring it down. And so one of the things that people have said is that this may be a conflict of interest because many of these organizations are highly funded by pharmaceutical companies. And I don't know what the leadership is um, at the current time, but in the past, the leadership has included no diabetics um, at all. So many of us in the diabetic community actually feel like there are people in this organization that are working against us. Granted, they are also doing some very good things that we're very grateful for, but um, this is something that I'm trying to in, engage in dialogue with the ADA about. Okay. So one of the things that they say, though, is that um, they want a diet that's going to be very attainable. Um, my experience, though, is that people would rather have, um, if they really understand what's going on, I think the people that I know would rather have normal blood sugar than and not have the downstream effects and give up some of the treats, some of the high sugar foods and the high carbohydrate foods. Mm. Um, I know not everyone feels that way. And so compliance with even an ADA diet um, has not been very good. It really is a big problem of compliance. But I believe that it's partly due to a lack of understanding. And if people will understand the basis of the disease, they'll um, make, make much better choices. Um, the other thing is, too, I mean, there are powerful cultural norms, and especially for children. So children with type 1 diabetes, many parents believe that it's difficult to constantly be telling them that they can't have the birthday cake and can't have the cookies at the snack time and um, so forth and so on. Um, the other thing is that if people really do control their portions, some people can lose weight on the ADA diet and can reverse their symptoms. But my experience and that of many clinicians I know is that um, many people cannot lose weight on the ADA diet. They really have to go low carb to reduce their insulin levels. So um, the advantage of a low carbohydrate diet for somebody with type 2 diabetes is that it really does have better rates of reversal and it doesn't require weight loss. So it gets the blood sugar down and even if people are eating to satiation, they're still uh, reversing some of their symptoms, even if they don't have weight loss. Um, lowers blood sugar faster and better. And in comparisons of sustainability, it's really shown to be the same as other diets. So here's just a little bit of data. Um, so this actually came from um, Jeff Volek's paper, but it's from data from Gannon in Utah. So um, what this was, were um, a group of people who are type 2 diabetics, and the uh, light blue triangles 
is hours after a meal um, on the usual diet. And then the yellow triangles is after five weeks on a 55% carbohydrate diet. So that was a little bit lowered in carbohydrate, but not significantly yes. lowered. Mm. But then the blue circles at the bottom are um, uh, after five weeks on a 20% carbohydrate diet. So still 20% carbohydrate is a, that's a decent amount of carbohydrate. It's not very low carb, but you can see that the blood sugar there um, on the y-axis really went down with the low yes, carbohydrate diet. Remarkable. The drop is very significant. Very significant, absolutely. And people see this you know, almost immediately. Mm. Um, now the measure of glycemic control that's most commonly used is this hemoglobin A1C. And that just means this glycated hemoglobin. So scientists um, or uh, people in the lab can measure how much of the hemoglobin actually has sugar stuck onto it. And we all have um, a minimal amount of glycated hemoglobin. So about four to five percent is normal. But people with elevated blood sugar will have maybe a range of six. And sometimes when people are first diagnosed, it can actually be as high as 14 percent. So um, this is a good measure of glycemic control because um, hemoglobin is replaced every, um, about every um, three, four months, about 120 days is the life cycle of a red blood cell. And so, um, as I said, the, the red blood cells are completely open to glucose and hemoglobin is very reactive with glucose. It's easy to measure. You can just get a blood sample and you don't have to take a liver biopsy or something. So you can measure this hemoglobin A1C, which tells you your glycemic control over the past couple of months. And so in this particular group, um, it was a high carb group and a low carb group. And so the top is um, five weeks of a high carbohydrate diet. And the uh, bottom is the low carb group. And so you can see that the hemoglobin A1C went from, um, there was a range of about 9.5 to about 10.5 at the start of the study. And the low carb group went down to, um, after five weeks, about 7.5%, but the high carbohydrate group had not lowered their A1C significantly at all. There are pretty big error bars, but you can see that um, there's a significant difference between those two groups. It really drives home how unhealthy the current food pyramid is for diabetics. Or Absolutely. That may be becoming diabetics. That is, Fuel yes, that is, epidemic. <laughs> right, what, what many people are suggesting, yes. Mm. So I think when people are young and active and they have a high carbohydrate diet and they're burning off that glucose, they don't have these problems. But as we age and maybe get less active um, and maybe just sort of accumulate a little bit of insulin resistance normally or perhaps our beta cells begin to die off a little bit, um, we're really not able to handle huge amounts of carbohydrate. Um, okay. Um, so I, I don't really mean to pick on the um, ADA um, too much because I'm grateful for a lot of the things that they do. But um, one of the things that has persisted is that they're making these guidelines that many people have been trained in. And so a lot of dietitians and nutritionists and um, people who are using licensing procedures are still using a lot of these old guidelines. Mm -hmm. And so what I experienced is I visited a dietitian who pushed carbohydrates on me. She said, I want you to eat a minimum of 130 carbohydrates a, a day. 
130 grams of carbohydrates a day. And um, I'll show you how that works for me <laughs> in a couple of, of slides. Um, so we do know that when type 2 diabetics are treated with a low-carb diet, um, there's reduced, reduced obesity um, by and large, and triglycerides. So that would be fat in the blood. And this is one of the markers that is fairly rigorous, has a fairly high, uh, strong correlation with heart disease. Mm. But triglycerides um, will go down on this diet. Um, so I'll, I'll move on there. Now for type 1 diabetics like myself, um, the reason that I personally um, find a low-carb diet to be um, effective is what's called the law of small numbers. And Dr. Richard Bernstein um, is the person who came up with this particular um, description. So um, the idea is that it's very difficult to estimate the amounts of carbohydrate that you're eating, first of all. And then it's very difficult to estimate how your body is going to respond to the insulin that you inject. You can say, well, I'm going to have 1.0 units you know, for every couple of grams of carbohydrate, but your body absorbs that insulin differently. It absorbs the food differently. And to get those two things to match is really quite a game. So if the carbohydrate is small, then the error is small. And then the insulin that you inject is small and that error is small. So um, I just find that I get so much better, more stable blood sugars with the low carb diet than with um, a high carb di diet. Okay. And I have um, certainly done the experiment. I have you know, had moments of um, no self-control and um, things that I wish I hadn't eaten. But um, whenever I've done that, I've really seen the consequence in my blood sugar. Just a quick question, Wendy. Sure. Do you find that people that are on gluten-free diets have less, I uh, have a few of them have got diabetes because a great source of gluten is the carbs, isn't it? The, the wheats and the grains. Yes. Um, some people have found that their glycemic control much improved when they went off the gluten. Now, a lot of people replace that gluten with rice flour and some other kinds of flours. And so they still might get a lot of carbohydrate, but there's a feeling, I'm not sure how super substantiated it is, but I've seen some papers and heard some rumors in the scientific community that um, something about the wheat that we use now, the wheat that we use is very high gluten. And um, that, that seems to be especially glycemic. And that when people do eliminate the gluten, they often have improved glycemic control, even if they are um, replacing it with rice flours and things. Have you given much thought about the role of glyphosate? Yes. So um, I have a pile of papers over here that a colleague has sent to me um, that I've been trying to get to. Um, I don't. I don't have enough expertise in that, but I can certainly tell you that there is some talk about glyphosate sticking, you know, onto the wheat and, you know, potentially also being a problem. Okay. Um, I don't have enough knowledge though to assess that literature. Okay. Um, just know that it's, it is being talked about and tested. Sure. Great. Um, so here would be the experiment that I did with myself. Um, when the dietitian told me that I should have 130 grams of carbohydrates, I gave in <laughs> and said, okay, you know, I was afraid of getting a stamp of noncompliance in my folder. So 
So I said, well, we'll try it your way. And so the red is my doing it her way. So even when I was trying to compensate for the increased carbohydrate in my diet by supplementing with insulin, it was really hard to match that carbohydrate. Um, perhaps if I'd let this go on for years and years, I would have gotten better at it. But um, this was several months and I just didn't get much better at it. So the blue is when I returned to the low carbohydrate diet. And even this wasn't great. I've had, um, I just picked two days randomly or a day randomly. Um, I could have found much better data for this. It looks like uh, where I was, really had normal blood sugars. Sorry? Also, it looks like you picked yourself every five minutes, drew, drew blood every five Oh, minutes. yes. So I should point out that there is a technology now um, called continuous glucose monitoring. So um, there are sensors that you um, insert into your skin, and it mentor, measures interstitial blood glucose. So not, um, you know, kind of like in between the cells, which corresponds very well to blood glucose. And it actually sends that data, that number, to your meter. Wow. So you can get 24-hour data. Isn't that amazing? I never knew about this one either. So people, of course, who are watching this video, they're going to say, where can I get one? Are they, what, are, yes. what's, what are they called? So um, mine is from Medtronic. And it's just called CGM, Continuous Glucose Monitor from Medtronic. Dexcom also makes one. And uh, I know a number of non-diabetics who have just been interested who got the Dexcom somehow. And, yeah, so it's possible. Um, I guess if people are willing to pay for it, yes. yes it's, but a, it's just a pad you put onto your skin? Yes. Wow. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a little bit um, – mine has to have a little inserter, so there's a little bit of force, but it doesn't hurt or anything. Okay, okay. Yeah. Wow, is that amazing? Yep. And I change it about once a week. Gosh. Yeah. So it's it's a wonderful, wonderful technology. And now too, um, they have the pumps configured so that the pumps can automatically respond to that number and change the rate of insulin delivery. Oh my goodness. So you don't have to do anything, it's a full full system. You just put it on and, and enjoy your day. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yes. So, um, okay, so, but um, one of the things that we, of course, want to do is if people aren't diabetic, um, they're going to be saying, well, what about me? And so um, I say, well, what about the non-diabetic population? And so there are three populations that um, I tend to be concerned with. So one is children, which really do tend to have um, a different kind of metabolism and that metabolism really changes over time. So when kids are growing, there are these growth hormones released, and there often is actually a little bit of insulin sensitivity during these growth spurts. Um, it's pretty hard to manage blood sugar really well in children. But then um, the rest of the population sometimes can be divided into people who are really good at burning sugar and people who are really good at burning fat. And my bias, and this is really just kind of my opinion, is that I just really believe that the better people are at burning fat, the healthier they are. So fat is burned in the mitochondria of cells. And um, as one of my colleagues says, you know, if your mitochondria are healthy, then you're healthy. And as somebody who studies mitochondria um, in my research lab, um, you know, I tend to kind of pay attention to these uh, kinds of things. So 
you can actually shift your metabolism from being primarily a sugar burner to being more of a fat burner. And the way to do that is to just eat more fat and less of the sugar. And um, although I really don't want to be giving um, advice, I really, really try to avoid that because it's an individual thing between people and their doctor. Um, I think it's important to realize that there isn't one diet that's perfect for everybody. Um, it can really depend on age, insulin sensitivity, activity level. Um, I you know, have a colleague who's tra training for an Ironman um, event right now, and he's eating a ton of carbohydrate. Um, you know, what he's eating, somebody who's sedentary could never get away with. Genetics plays a role, you know, disease state, all of these kinds of things. But I think even in a non-diabetic, paying attention to the glycemic content or the amount of carbohydrate is um, something that's important. So here are some data from a non-diabetic. Um, and this um, is comparing what's called a low glycemic index food with a high glycemic index food. So the glycemic index sort of tells you the blood sugar rise per weight of the food. And it's useful in some cases, but not useful in other cases. You really kind of have to get to the extremes of the glycemic index for there really to be a difference. Um, but in any case, if you were to take a cracker, okay, that would be a very high glycemic um, food or a, a, um, a chip or a crisp or um, whatever you're going to call it. Um, that is going to have a, a, a very fast blood sugar rise. And so in the top uh, graph there, we can see in the light blue that the dashed line is insulin and the blue is the blood sugar rise. There's a quick blood sugar rise and then that's followed by a blood sugar drop because there was a little bit too much insulin because the food was so glycemic um, that there was a big insulin response. The low glycemic index food, which might have been meat or maybe might have been something like beans um, with a much slower rise in blood sugar, um, also had a much smaller rise in insulin and was not followed by that crash, that low blood sugar at the end. So if, even for non-diabetics, I think paying attention to the way that the body processes carbohydrate is important. Yes. But we probably want to think about, well, what if we have mixed meals, right? So we don't usually, unless you're maybe drinking a soda or something, um, have pure carbohydrate. Mm. So um, a colleague of mine um, put this on her website and did a really beautiful job. Um, so um, I really appreciate the work that uh, Ruth did here. But this compares white bread, which is the, um, the change in blood sugar. Okay, so it's not, um, anyway, so you, you can see that the, this, um, the, the change in the blood sugar concentration. Yes. And so the yellow is the white bread. And so that's rising quite high and then followed by that blood sugar crash as we expect for high glycemic foods. Yeah. Um, so then she looked at high fiber rye bread and so that's that green, olive green mm -hmm. color. And you can see that the blood sugar rise was less and it was followed by less of a crash. So fiber can really slow that release of glucose. For many diabetics, it's not significant, but I think for people who are not diabetic, it can be, um, it, it can be important. Um, white bread sourdough is a little bit sort of already broken down a little bit um, that had less of a rise. And then vinegar is also known to slow the absorption of carbohydrate. So the blue there, there was still a rise, but um, since it, uh, it, it had an effect. 
Yes. So here's um, different kinds of oatmeal. Sorry? Oh, sorry, I was just saying there's no crash afterwards, which is quite important, I guess. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right, so that would be a much more satisfying meal. It doesn't oh. sound pleasant to me to be um, taking uh, vinegar with my bread, but um, yeah, certainly it would have an effect. And I know people who, in fact, um, use, use vinegar very successfully um, with their diet. Okay. Um, no, we all know that processing affects food, right? Mm. So um, the more processed things are and the more finely ground they are, the quicker the enzymes can get at that carbohydrate and the quicker that blood sugar is going to rise. So if we look at instant oatmeal, which seems like a wonderful invention, you can get your oatmeal in one minute, um, very finely ground, plus a lot of the instant oatmeal actually adds oat flour for a thickener. And so um, the... Um, Let's see, where are we here? The whole oatmeal there is the, uh, or sorry, the instant oatmeal is the yellow. And so there was a very quick rise and again, followed by that decrease, um, that blood sugar crash. Mm. When the um, whole oats were soaked, they get rid of some of the fatty acid, which is an inhibitor of absorption. Um, again, there was this, um, this uh, other rise here. So I'm just, uh, I can't see my own graph here. Um, because my computer, but when the oats were consumed with salmon, okay, so now you have protein, and um, this is having a little bit of, uh, simulating a little bit of glucagon, as well as the insulin, um, and you're just, again, sort of hindering the access of the enzymes for that carbohydrate. Um, you can see that the blood sugar rise was significantly less, even though it was the same amount of oatmeal, same amount of carbohydrate, and um, you didn't have that crash at the end. But now if we look at protein versus carbohydrate, um, and we look at drinking a soda. So Coca-Cola, um, again, the same amount of carbohydrate, but that yellow is the Coca-Cola. And so you can see, psh, mm. big spike, followed by a crash. A great um, chemical company. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's you know, good if you're maybe trying to um, get back to normal blood sugar after a low, but um, it's, yeah. That's what it's doing. And then the whole oats, there was more of a predictable uh, rise. The yes. kidney beans, again, because of the fiber, um, less of a blood sugar rise. And again, it also took its time. It's much more slower to be digested. And so the blood sugar rise was kind of uh, taking a little bit longer. But then if you looked at the salmon itself, um, the salmon had actually a little dip followed by um, a small rise. Okay, and that would be due to the um, you know, certain things that were going on with the amino acids. All right. So, any questions there? No, I guess the salmon will be the the fat will be binding the glucose, making it not available to the body, and this is why it removes the residual. Yeah. So that would be that's probably a complex um, series of things going on. It's probably the fact that since there isn't a carbohydrate there the blood sugar is going up, um, not because of carbohydrate in the salmon, but because the body is then accessing its own stored glucose. Okay. And so the blood sugar is probably going up a little bit, um, really in response to that, that low blood sugar, as opposed to anything being in the salmon. Would it be most fats that would have the same function? Um, yes, most, well, fats um, would have very, very, almost no, no rise in blood sugar. Okay. Protein will often have um, a little bit, okay, but, but much less than carbohydrate. Okay.
So when we talk about low-carbohydrate diets, there are several ways to go. And one of the things that is being talked about a lot is this keto diet. So I just wanted to let people know what that actually is. So keto stands for ketogenic. And um, the person who really popularized this or repopularized it was Atkins. But it doesn't have to be exactly like an Atkins diet. And then something like a South Beach diet, that's fallen off the radar a little bit, but um, there are diets that are still low carb that aren't really ketogenic. So what does that mean? So if you are really, really lowering your carbohydrates, about less than 20 grams of carbohydrates a day. So that's really anything because a piece of bread has about 14 grams of carbohydrate. Um, what will happen is that fats or the stored fat in our body um, will break down kind of incompletely into these things called ketone bodies. So normally fat gets completely oxidized all the way to carbon dioxide and water, but it can form these ketone bodies and the ketone bodies can be expelled without being completely broken down. So there can be a loss of efficiency when your body is making these ketones. Now some of them are acids. And so in uncontrolled type one diabetes, there's a condition called ketoacidosis where those ketones go up so high that they overwhelm the blood buffering barrier and they make the body acidic. But that doesn't happen really unless there's really insulin insufficiency. So we do keto, um, ketosis all the time. So overnight, your body will often be in a state of ketosis. If you're doing a long bout of exercise, you're probably supplementing with a little bit of ketosis. That's a normal kind of process. Um, but what people will do with this particular diet is really push it um, to make their fat break down um, a little faster. So this is a really technical slide, and it might not mean anything to people who aren't really familiar with biochemistry pathways, but I'm including it just in case there is somebody out there in the audience who um, is familiar with these biochemistry pathways. But one of the things that we say is that all foods break down into this substance called acetyl-CoA, so it's there in the middle. And I tell my students that this is sort of like the transfer station in the subway stop. Um, everything breaks down to acetyl-CoA, and then it can go into some other kinds of pathways. So fat gets made into acetyl-CoA, protein gets made into acetyl-CoA, carbohydrate gets made into acetyl-CoA. If there's enough of this substance called oxaloacetate, acetyl-CoA will combine with it, go through something called the citric acid cycle, and then go to the mitochondria and be used for energy. If that oxaloacetate is insufficient, then the acetyl-CoA will be used to make ketones. So what would reduce that oxaloacetate? The oxaloacetate can be used to make glucose. So if that's a substrate for gluconeogenesis to make glucose, then you're sort of forcing the body into this pathway of ketosis. All right. Okay. Too much? Well, <laughs> uh, page, I remember saying at the start, the slideshow is easy to understand. Well, I'll take it back now. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I thought that might be. Yeah, that's, that's really advanced. So, you know, even my students in biochemistry one aren't there yet. They'd have to, they wouldn't um, be understanding this until they got to biochemistry two. Okay. But um, I just really, what I want people to understand is that by having different macronutrients in the diet, you can force your body into more of this ketosis or less of this ketosis. And the ketosis, making these ketones as fuel, is less efficient, um, especially at first. You know, your body can adapt to it, but especially at first, it's very efficient. And so when people first go on a ketogenic diet, there's often rather rapid, um, significant weight loss. Okay, um, so 
um, one of the things people often say is, well, calories in, calories out, and sort of, okay? So we certainly have the first law of thermodynamics, all of that conservation of energy still holds, but we can change our efficiency. And so the example that I use for my students is this. So if you had a fireplace in a house, we know that fireplaces are very inefficient, and a lot of that heat goes up the chimney. If you have a wood-burning stove that's airtight, you know, made of cast iron or sheet metal or something, it does a much better job of sending that heat into the room and less goes up the chimney. And what you can do with your macronutrients is actually um, cause your body to be less efficient so that more of the energy is released as heat. And that's what happens in a ketogenic diet. That's interesting. And that'll be good for people that have got thyroid issues as well. Does it make the thyroid change gear? Um, well, um, the thyroid is, I would say, much less um, responsive to diet, um, except maybe iodine can affect the thyroid. Okay. Um, but absolutely, there are, when people have thyroid issues, that's one of their symptoms is they begin to experience dif differences in their heat. Mm. So an overactive thyroid, people are often warm. An underactive thyroid, people are often cold. Okay. So that being cold is really showing that um, uh, the body has kind of um, increased its efficiency and isn't using that energy to warm itself. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so ketogenic diets are, are being studied significantly. There have been, you know, over 100 um, trials that I know of studying the um, ketogenic diet. And um, there really have not been negative outcomes. People were afraid that this was going to be um, an unhealthy kind of diet. But uh, in fact, people have shown a lot of health improvements. So most people see blood sugar improvements, improvements in their lipids. Um, sometimes cholesterol will go up, but um, HDL, which is the more protective one, will go up um, and triglycerides will go down. And then people will say, well, are there going to be deficiencies? Um, certainly there's a lack of fiber, but that can be compensated for with supplements or things. Um, and then again, fiber isn't necessarily a requirement, um, you know, may contribute to gut health and um, some other kinds of things. That's a complicated question. But um, if you consider the consequences of type 2 diabetes or obesity versus having a little bit of fiber in the diet, um, there's almost no comparison. So when people are in this state of ketosis, at least at first, the body is making the ketones but not using them all. And so some of them will be expelled actually on the breath. So acetone on the breath is a sign of somebody being newly on a ketogenic diet. Um, and then also some of them will be expelled into the urine without being used. And so people can actually measure these with these ketone strips. Um, so um, if they turn purple, that's a sign that there's a lot of um, ketones in the, in the urine. And diabetics will use these as well because, um, again, a lot of ketones will indicate that the body um, isn't making enough insulin. Okay. Um, so we could stop there and go to questions or... Okay. Well, I have got one question, actually. Yes. Uh, uh, Wolfgang Janata has asked, it's going back a little bit when you're talking about the non-invasive blood sugar monitoring. If you can say it slowly or perhaps even spell it so that people can do their search. Sure. So um, one is called Dexcom, D-E-X-C-O-M, 
for the, you're talking about the continuous glucose monitoring, yes. right? Yes. yes. And there's another one that's made by the company Medtronic, M-E-D-T-R-O-N-I-C. And that one, they've changed their technology. I used to use something called the Enlite, E-N-L-I-T-E sensor. And now they've switched to something called the Guardian sensor, but I don't know if that's going to be useful in an internet search or not. No, I've, I did a search for, is Dexcom.com. Dexcom, D-E-X-C-O-M. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and the other thing that people can search under would be continuous glucose monitor. Yes, yes. I wonder if I can do a copy and paste so people that are, doing, that are online on the summer can view the... Oh, no, I can't. I, uh, Give it a try. So, uh, okay. So, okay. Sent the thing in the text. So, people that have registered on the summer can see the link. Perhaps we can provide links in the published video. I'll ask Sam to do that for us. Wonderful. Okay. Sure. Okay. Um. Well, I'd say another changing paradigm is this idea of saturated fat as being evil. Now, this is a little bit um, still controversial because there are people that have not really embraced this as a new idea or are cautious about it or are really um, still believing um, uh, in the evils of saturated fat. Um, first of all, I'd say that most people are changing to the idea that um, a low-fat diet, if you're replacing fats with carbohydrates, that's not going to have a good outcome in most people. Okay. But the saturated fats from things like butter and from natural foods um, we have been studied so many times, just many, many times. I can, again, think of about 130 different studies of saturated fat. And whenever there's been um, an association with heart disease, it's been small. Uh, it's in most studies, there's always the extraneous one where somebody's going to disagree with me. And then there have been some studies that said, well, actually, if people had more saturated fat in their diet, they had less heart disease. And then there were studies that said that there was no effect at all. And so I think when you look at that big picture, small effect, positive, small effect, negative, no effect at all, you, it averages out to the fact that saturated fat seems to be relatively benign, at least in the context of a low-carbohydrate diet. So if you have high carbs and high saturated fat, that may be a bad arrangement, a bad situation. But in the context of a low carbohydrate diet, saturated fat does not seem to have adverse consequences. So at least that's really what I believe the literature is telling me. There may be people who really disagree with me on that, but um, I'm pretty strong in that position. That's what the literature says. So again, you know, my word, there's almost been blood spilt over this question of whether fat is dangerous or not. Mm. Um, but there are a couple of misconceptions that I hear all the time. And so I really want to get these myths out of the way, at least. So first of all, there's this idea that if you have fat in the diet, that that's going to become fat in the body. And no. Um, first of all, what does the body do with excess carbohydrate? It actually makes it into saturated fat. So um, your, your body makes plenty of saturated fat. If it was completely dangerous, um, I think we wouldn't see this being the kind of fat that your body makes. 
Um, another one, um, this idea that saturated fat will clog your arteries. Okay, so there's no fat kind of floating around congealing anywhere in your body because it, it gets broken into these tiny lipid droplets. And then those lipid droplets are packaged into these big soluble lipoprotein particles. Okay, so there's, it's not like the fat in your sink, okay, um, plugging up those, those pipes. Um, your arteries are not like that at all. You never have um, fat congealing in your arteries. So also a lot of people don't know what saturated versus unsaturated means. And you kind of have to know the chemistry and it's not that useful, but on the other hand, it's good to know what the words mean. So we all know what the word saturated means. So if you have a sponge and it can't take in any more water, it's saturated, right? So in the case of a fat, we're talking about um, a component of the fat that can't take in any more hydrogen. So it's really saturated with hydrogen. And so that means that the arrangement is really stable and um, it makes a really straight structure. And if you compare that with unsaturated fatty acids, so these are ones that can react with hydrogen. Um, they can take in more hydrogen. And the part that will take in more hydrogen is what's called the double bond. So in this structure here, all the carbons and hydrogens aren't seen. Um, all you see is a bond between the carbon and the hydrogen because organic chemists write so much hard chem, uh, write so much carbon and hydrogen they just eventually write just bonds. Okay, so um, the one on the uh, right you can see has these double bonds where the the two lines. That means that there's a spot there that's really reactive with hydrogen, also with oxygen, other kinds of things, and those double bonds make this kinked structure. So since those Unsaturated fatty acids are kinked, they don't pack together as well. And it means that um, there isn't a lot of energy holding them together, and so these tend to be liquids. Whereas the saturated fats can line up together, and since they can line up together, they can interact with each other really well. And so there'll be attractions between them. You know, all molecules attract each other to a certain extent. And the closer they get, the better they attract each other. Mm. So those tend to be solids at room temperature. And the unsaturated ones tend to be liquids at room temperature. Okay. And kink structure will um, then also be in the fats that are in our membranes. But in any case, the saturated fats are more abundant in animal fats. So lard, butter, muscle meats, especially beef. Um, and then also the tropical oils. So palm oil, coconut oil. Although those are plants, they're still high in saturated fats. And then the other source of saturated fats is vegetable oils that were isolated in an unsaturated form, but um, if I can just go back a second to the previous slide, those double bonds are really reactive. So they react with hydrogen, but they also react with oxygen, and they make, they're one of the things that make fats go rancid. So when these things called fatty acids are removed from the fats, they make the fat rancid, but also when oxygen reacts with these double bonds, it makes the fats taste bad. And companies haven't wanted that, they want a nice long, Self life. So they found ways to hydrogenate these unsaturated fatty acids and make them take in hydrogen and then become more saturated. So, what happens though when this um, hydrogenation process occurs is that some of the bonds take on this sort of unnatural shape called a trans fatty acid. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it also makes these fats. Since they're more solid, once they've been hydrogenated, it makes them a little more flaky in baked goods. And it also extends their shelf life. So companies have really wanted to use those 
hydrogenated fats or partially hydrogenated fats. They can start off with the plant oils and seed oils that are cheap, hydrogenate them, and then make them a little bit more stable. Right. Okay. Perfect um, for the consumer. <laughs> yes, 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 absolutely. So um, the unsaturated fats tend to be in things like corn oil, peanut oil, olive oil, um, although it's never that any of these are 100% one or the other. It's just that they're you know, predominantly, they have more of the unsaturated fats. Um, okay, but as we said, these will tend to go rancid. So olive oil has to be kept in a dark bottle so that light won't get at it and kind of accelerate this reaction with oxygen. Some of these other oils, people will sometimes even refrigerate them. Why am I not going forward here? There we go. Um, I think we can just move on. So one of the things that I said is that you never have fat droplets in the bloodstream. Instead, you have these lipoprotein particles. So they're made of lots of cholesterol and fats coming together, and they're surrounded by these um, kind of fat-like structures that have a charge that make it really soluble. Anyway, these are called lipoproteins. And so this is your high-density lipoproteins, your low-density lipoproteins. Um, just realize that it's a cluster of lipids and proteins. And the protein is very useful. So, um, for example, um, you know, around here you can the, these little yellow and, and magenta circles. The proteins can then react with sites on cells and then deliver the fatty acids or deliver the um, cholesterol, whatever they need to do. So we have two, well, there are lots of types of lipoproteins, but the two major ones are the high density lipoproteins. And what's important here is that these carry oxidized cholesterol back to the liver for reprocessing. So that's why they're called the good cholesterol. And I'm simplifying a lot here because heart disease is super complex, but you kind of have to start somewhere in understanding this. So the um, LDLs, those are the low density lipoproteins and they really carry cholesterol to the cells. Um, so if we're gonna have just a maybe surface understanding of heart disease or atherosclerosis, um, here's one way to think about it. So um, we have these arteries and you know, our blood is kind of going through these artery walls and it's kind of pounding against these artery walls. Um, we can have, when we have high blood pressure, for example, there'll be more pounding. Mm -hmm. And so that will tend to damage the walls. And so then there has to be repair. And so um, cells will come in and there'll be things called uh, macrophages, which are kind of immune cells. They don't regulate their cholesterol, so they take in a lot of cholesterol. One way to think about it is that the body makes a scab, okay? And so the more scabs you have, the more you're going to be narrowing that, um, that artery. Mm. Okay. So another way that I often think about it is that you have, a, say you're going down a hallway and the hallway gets increasingly damaged and repaired. And so um, the, uh, the repair, every time it's repaired, it gets bigger and bigger. And so then your passageway through the hallway gets narrower and narrower. I understand. Too much <laughs> useful or not. I don't know. Well, but in any case, please go ahead. Um, now you're saying that, that LDL used to be called bad cholesterol. Right. Some people still do. So it, it's controversial. I'd say where we are is that there are many people who don't believe that it's um, a, much of a risk factor for heart disease. And there's still people who do believe it. 
-hmm. the shift is that there are increasing numbers of people who don't believe that it's a risk okay. factor. Um, I think compared with some of the other risk factors, it's less strong than many of the other risk factors. Okay. And I think high blood sugar is a very strong risk, risk factor okay. for heart disease. Um, but in any case, you really, once you do have this plaque, the other thing is that you want to keep it stable. You want to keep it right where it is usually because um, once it dislodges, it can kind of float around and then enter a, a, a blood vessel going to the brain or going to the heart and that would be you know, heart attack and stroke. You don't want that. Um, we do know that plaques have lots of cholesterol in them and so that's one of the reasons why people initially thought that, well, if you have high blood cholesterol, then you're probably going to have lots of plaques. And really it's not, it doesn't seem to be high cholesterol that's driving the formation of those plaques. Um, we also know that if you do have super, super, super high LDL, that that does have a strong correlation with heart disease. But it's really only at that extreme end that the correlation is super high. Um, in any case, the idea that if you avoid saturated fat to prevent heart disease, that I think is carrying less weight these days. Um, I'm glossing over this a little bit just because we could really get into a lot of controversial details about um, heart disease. But it's useful to have some principles, I think. Um, so as we're saying, cholesterol really only correlates partly with cardiovascular disease at those extreme ends. But about half to even more um, heart attack victims actually have normal cholesterol or low cholesterol. Gosh. So again, not a really strong... Uh, risk factor. And if you look at people with a lot of longevity who live very late in life, a lot of them will tend to have higher cholesterol. So women especially, um, women who live longer tend to have higher cholesterol than uh, women who die earlier. So yeah, kind of complicated as a risk factor. There doesn't factor. seem to be a direct correlation there, does there, between cholesterol and state of health? <laughs> no, it's really, it's pretty weak. Um, and then another thing about our, our, um, assumptions about heart disease, a lot of the studies about heart disease and diet were really done kind of in the context of a high carbohydrate diet. And I think a lot of things are really going to have to be reinvestigated for low carbohydrate diets to kind of tease out exactly what is the important factor here. Um, I mentioned those trans fats, those fats that had been hydrogenated, and they actually do have a fairly strong correlation with heart disease. Now, correlation doesn't mean causation, but if the correlation is strong and there's a dose effect and you take away the thing that you're studying and then your rate of heart disease goes down, that's a pretty good indication that there's um, a perhaps a likely um, causation. And in any case, trans fats really do have a um, uh, high association rate. And then also there's a mechanism for here. So we know that trans fats just don't pack right in membranes. And so um, our cell membranes really have to have a very specific architecture for them to operate correctly. Um, another idea is that these trans fats aren't good substrates for our enzymes, and so they might accumulate more in, in fat cells. All right, so I think maybe just one more concept, and then we can go to questions, or, or what do you think? Uh, no, this, this, this omega-3, we hear a lot about omega-12. 
So omega-3 from fish oils, is that good for? Sure. Yeah. Okay, so sure. So let's, um, yeah, so let's talk about, let's talk about this. I don't want to overwhelm your audience. My students would have probably gone to sleep right now. But, um, although I have great grades. But the omega-3, so this really refers to the position of um, a double bond from the end. So omega-3 by itself isn't fairly, in, isn't very informative about what it is. But we'll talk about what these omega-3s um, mean and where they come from. We know that they tend to come from fatty fish, and some from fish oils. So salmon, mackerel, uh, trout, um, sardines to a certain extent. But what we have to understand is that there are two essential fatty acids. So there are essential amino acids, parts of proteins. There are essential fatty acids, which are parts of fats. And so your body has to take in from the diet these um, fatty acids. Um, and um, there's an omega-3 and there's an omega-6. So one of them is called linoleic acid, and the other one is called um, alpha-linolenic acid. And the alpha-linolenic acid is an omega-3, which just means that the double bond is three, if I can, if my cursor shows it, does my cursor yes. show it? Three um, positions from the end. Okay, and the other one being omega-6 is um, six positions from the end. So that's not terribly informative. But what this means is that um, your body can't create this double bond um, by itself. It needs a substrate. It needs a starting block to make that. And your body needs these long-chain unsaturated fatty acids. It's called DHA and EPA. And these are all omega-3s. And they can only be made from ALA, which is an omega-3. So you have to have either the end product, which is the fish oil, the DHA and EPA in your diet, or you have to have the ALA, the substrate to make the DHA and EPA. Does that make sense? Yes. So you can ingest the DHA and EPA in fish or fish oil, or you can ingest the ALA and then make the DHA and EPA. Okay. okay. And these are very important because um, these compounds are uh, necessary components of membranes. And when you have the right um, components, in the membranes, your cells tend to respond very well, the insulin receptors and things. Um, but then also, um, when you have um, cell disruption and membranes are broken down, if you have the DHA and EPA, these are released, um, what tends to be released are anti-inflammatory hormones, whereas the membrane components, if they're not made of these particular fatty acids, can be made into pro-inflammatory hormones. So your cell membranes are actually sources of fatty acids to make hormones. And they can either be pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory. What it just means is if you have the right balance, you're likely to get the anti-inflammatory. Complicated. Okay. Um, wow, yes, yes. I usually spend a couple of weeks on this, you know, in my, in my classes. <laughs> um, well, I wonder if we're going to squeeze the question. There's another question by Wolfgang Janata. It's just going back to the diabetes again, because diabetes is a chronic condition. He's asking about the availability of magnesium and whether magnesium plays a role in diabetes and whether, I guess, supplementing magnesium can assist in the control. Have you had yes. experience with that? Yes, absolutely. There are many people who believe that uh, magnesium is, is very crucial for optimal blood sugar control. So... I think, though, that once you have diabetes, um, the 
effective magnesium, well, if you have, um, let me back up a little bit. I think if you are, the literature shows that if you're chronically low in magnesium, that your insulin is not going to be uh, working quite as well. Magnesium plays a role in the insulin secretion and it plays a role in many of the other metabolic enzymes. So if you had a low amount, some of that would be malfunctioning and your blood sugar would be high. Um, if you are supplementing with magnesium or you're getting adequate magnesium in your diet, then you're giving your body the ability to fine tune itself a little bit better. But once you have full-blown type two diabetes, it's not like you can take magnesium and now your symptoms can go away. Okay. 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 But you can fine tune, I'd say, with a little bit of I can type one diabetes with that? Um, yes, again, with type one diabetes, because it does play a role in insulin secretion and you do want to keep your cells sensitive um, again there are there are demonstrated effects they're not huge effects but there are demonstrated effects great okay another question is just sneaked in uh, by from Debbie Nowick she asks when analysis is being done uh, do they take into account GMO foods versus non-GMO foods you showed grass before that showed the effects of wheat intake, oats, and the oat flour, and how we had the rise and then the, the trough afterwards in the graph. You know, all right. foods versus organic foods. Is it harder for the body to break down GMO foods or foods that have been grown in a toxic environment, in other words? I think it doesn't make a huge difference in terms of the main thing that drives high blood sugar. So the GMO foods are still going to have carbohydrates and that carbohydrate is going to be what influences the blood glucose the most. Okay. Um, what is more likely is if the food has been genetically modified to maybe be resistant to pesticides. And so then maybe the food has been sprayed extensively with glyphosate or some of these other kinds of things. If it has pesticide residues, that might be a little bit more of a problem, but okay. it's really the carbohydrate, carbohydrate content of the food that's going to drive the blood sugar. Okay, I understand. Thank you. Yeah. And wheat, uh, my understanding is that although that has, um, we now grow a lot of winter wheat and it's a high gluten, high yield variety, it hasn't had the same genetic modification that corn has had and soybeans have had. It's been a little bit more of a natural breeding kind of thing, natural selection. Okay. okay. I mean, man-made, but not done at the sort of genetic manipulation level. Okay. Um, yeah. Great. Okay, that's all the questions that have come through. Okay. Um, well, one of the problems with having a lot of seed oils in our diet is that a lot of these are omega-6 fatty acids, and they can interfere with our ability to make these very useful omega-3s. They kind of saturate the enzyme that we need, and um, if you have a lot of omega-6s in the diet, what that means is that the body makes less of the omega-3s. So that's one reason to have um, the ALA in your diet um, that can be obtained from things like flax oil, flaxseed. Um, walnuts, just a certain extent, or the actual fish oils. 
And then this is complicated, but this just shows the omega-6 family and the omega-3 family. The point being that the omega-6s tend to lead to these pro-inflammatory um, hormones and the omega-3s tend to lead to many of the anti-inflammatory hormones. It's a generalization, but overall it works. Um, now this is just a correlation and we said the correlation doesn't imply causation, but it's a fairly strong correlation in this case that if you look at um, mortality and omega-6 fatty acid levels in the bloodstream, that um, mortality from cardiovascular disease tends to rise with an increase in these um, omega-6 fatty, fatty acids. Now, so what has omega-6s and what has omega-3s? Um, well, if you look at this list, so we're starting at the top with the um, sunflower, the corn oil, these have zero omega-3s. Mm. Um, you have to get down to soybean oil before you begin to have omega-3s. Soybean oil has about 7%. Canola from rapeseed has about 9%. Yeah. Um, and so the marketers, of course, glom onto this and tell you that canola oil is one of the more helpful ones. Um, and then flaxseed oil um, actually is significant in the omega-3 content, and then fish oil has a lot. It's, it's going back to the previous chart, Wendy. It's, mm -hmm. you've, you've put an arrow saying, oh, no, the one showing the oils, with which, one, which ones have got the percentage of the omegas in them. Was the one oh, I, this, is, oops, uh, this one? You're too fast. The, one that, the, the, the double-column chart that you have showing the different oils where the canola this one here yes okay why canola is promoted as healthful but it just shows how numbers don't give the full story because canola is from rapeseed which is quite a poison but other things as well i know flaxseed is very high in ostrogen and so that may be something which may not be desirable for other reasons so it's not just yes oil types so that you look at it's a whole it's a food so there's this isn't the full story. Right. The compounds, there's a lot of talk about this, and I wouldn't say that the situation is resolved. There are a number of estrogen-like molecules in flax, and these can bind weakly to the estrogen receptor. Some of them are agonists, meaning that they initiate the same downstream effects as estrogen when they bind to the receptor, and some of them are antagonists. Okay. So it's not really clear in my mind from my reading of literature to what degree these estrogenic like compounds are a problem. Okay. Um, anecdotally, I have heard of younger women really experiencing um, symptoms with flax oil. So anecdotally, I think there are some reasons to be concerned about having large quantities of it, but um, okay. not super well established. Now, I notice that coconut oil is not there. Is that, where would that be on that list? Because uh, mostly saturated fatty oh. acids. Okay. So it won't have these um, double bonds. And the beauty of coconut oil is that it has a really long shelf life. It doesn't go bad because it's primarily saturated fatty acids. Um, another interesting thing about coconut oil is that it has these short chain fatty acids. And it's well known that these short chain fatty acids are preferentially used for energy. So you'll hear about the coconut oil diet and the coconut miracle and things. There really is a well demonstrated advantage for coconut oil 
Something, um, you know, and it tastes terrific as well. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, I, I'm not personally fond of coconuts, but there are, are versions of coconut oil that don't taste like coconuts. So, yeah. <laughs> but I'm glad you like it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you. Sure. Um, so, do you, what do you want to do? You want to move on, or Let's I have move on. okay, okay. So another big problem these days is um, intestinal diseases of various kinds. So a lot of um, inflammation um, in the um, digestive system. A lot of people experiencing severe heartburn. A lot of reflux, and there's some interesting ideas here. So again, I'm sort of talking about a paradigm shift. And if we're in the shift, it means that not everyone in the world is going to agree with me here. But there are some new ideas that are um, out there, and I think they have some merit. So I'll be talking about some of these new ideas. Okay. So you might have heard this term GERD, gastrointestinal reflux disease. So it's really kind of a fancy way of saying heartburn. Another one, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Um, what, what can happen here is that you actually have stomach acids splashing into the esophagus. It doesn't feel good. Um, so you get this burning uh, pain, but then there can also be kind of a chronic inflammation from it. Um, people will sometimes um, suffer some things in their voice box, um, some uh, in addition to pain, but just some, some hoarseness. Okay. So the old paradigm about this was that there were trigger foods. And these trigger foods weakened or relaxed um, what's called the lower esophageal sphincter. And so kind of showing it over here a little bit, there's this little muscle and normally it's closed, but it can open and then the acid splashes up um, because of these trigger foods. Um, and so people said these trigger foods were things like chocolate, sodas, um, you know, obviously sodas with the carbonation, um, you know, there tended to be a little bit of um, gas release anyway. Tomatoes, spicy foods, fatty foods, red wine, and coffee. Yeah, well, everyone knows nowadays that all those foods are actually good for you. Well, <laughs> like chocolate is a, it's well, one yeah. of the food groups, isn't it? Not one of the main foods. Well, yeah, yes. Well, you know, dark chocolate has been shown in so many studies um, to have these anti-inflammatory um, flavonoids and these um, antioxidants. Yes. Um, so, you know, one of my colleagues says to treat and uh, to treat dark chocolate like a vegetable, you know, because of all the antioxidants. So. <laughs> um, assuming it doesn't have too much sugar. But I, I, in fact, like a kind of dark chocolate that has very little sugar. And it's very satisfying. And Well, it is, isn't it? It's, it's got that bitterness that's quite appealing. Absolutely. I think it makes a very nice end, end to a meal. And you don't need a lot of it to be very satisfied. Yes. yes. Tend to not overeat it. Right. Unlike chocolate, which, you know, you could um, easily overeat. But I, yeah, I completely agree with you there. And so I think the things that are on this list, these were called trigger foods because sometimes they did maybe cause an episodic kind of heartburn, but not the chronic heartburn um, that people who really suffer from this um, mm. have had. So um, the way that people have thought, or pharmaceutical companies especially, got on board with this, because this got them a lot of money, was to say, well, let's neutralize the acid, so antacids. Um, other people said, well, uh, the reason that you have acid in your stomach anyway is because you have these pumps for this acid. So let's just inhibit those particular acid-generating um, pumps. 
and certainly that did seem to have an effect, at least on some of this episodic heartburn. And then things called the H2 receptor antagonist, that's kind of complicated, but there is a protein that stimulates gastric acid secretion. So if you inhibit that, it inhibits some of the gastric acid. And then people said, well, you know, keep your stomach acid diluted, um, keep your head elevated, all of these kinds of things. And so there have been a ton of pharmaceuticals yeah. uh, developed for this episodic. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but it really didn't address, these things didn't really address the cause of this heartburn. And for many people who had chronic heartburn, these things were ineffective. Right. Um, and then also, if you're inhibiting your stomach acid or reducing it, um, it made foods a little harder to digest. Um, there were leaps to be some increases in pneumonia. I mean, one of the functions of that stomach acid is to kill off a lot of bacteria. Mm. It does a really good job. It's super low pH and, you know, we kind of dunk your food in acid and it <laughs> sterilizes it, is, you know, basically what happens in your stomach. Yes. Um, so some people, you know, actually with this low stomach acid developed things like pneumonia or um, chronic diarrhea. And many people got worse. And then also you, um, there was poor absorption of many kinds of nutrients. And you know that you're interested in magnesium and some of your audience is inter interested in magnesium. Um, this could also lead to low magnesium levels. Wow. So a new idea is that some of this chronic um, acid reflux is actually due to bacterial overgrowth. And so this is called um, SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And one potential cause might be these poorly absorbed carbohydrates. Um, and so these poorly absorbed carbohydrates have to be fermented by bacteria. And so if you're giving the bacteria a lot of this food, then of course the bacteria can proliferate. And if you're doing a lot of fermentation, the fermentation releases gases. So hydrogen, methane, carbon dioxide. And obviously that's you know, unpleasant for your digestive system. But some of that um, gases can also be expelled sort of upwards and that can drive reflux. So there's this gastric pressure, it drives the reflux, it drives bloating. Um, it's another side effect of um, a lot of these conditions. And then this pressure and this release of gases is this opening that lower esophageal sphincter. Okay. It's not a trigger food, it's stuff going on way much lower in the intestine. So that kind of explains why some people get worse with of these stomach acid inhibitors because um, they actually need the acid to get rid of some of this bacterial overgrowth. Right. Um, so this can be um, avoided with some foods that are real triggers for SIBO, um, but also um, reducing certain kinds of, of um, carbohydrate um, in the diet will also um, often be effective. Can we just go to the previous slide, Wendy? Mm -hmm. Uh, sure. I'm looking at the foods. Well, cookies are obvious, but dried apricots, that struck me as unusual. Why is it sugars and those? So very high in fructose. Okay. Um, and so the, a lot of the dried fruits and the fruit juices will t tend to have concentrated amounts of fructose. Yes. And the way that fructose is metabolized is a little different from the way that glucose is metabolized. And mm. it's not as regulated. So you actually tend to get a little bit more acid from um, fructose than you do from glucose. Okay. Isn't it remarkable fiber is in that list? Right. So um, although fiber isn't digested by our normal kinds of enzymes, it will sometimes be fermented 
by bacteria um, in the lower gut. Isn't that remarkable? I never realized that. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Yep. And then there are things called resistant starches too that are broken down by bacteria in the, right. in the gut. So any of these things that tend to contribute to um, you know, bacterial overgrowth would be reduced. Now, some of these things are also believed to be healthful if you're trying to get good bacteria in the, in the lower guts. So it's, it's a bit of a complicated system. But um, anyway, this is the idea for okay. um, yes. intestinal disorders. Yeah. Okay. Gluten. Okay, so do you, I mean, at this point, do you want questions? Or, I mean, the, the last thing I have is just a little bit about gluten. Okay, well, no, no other questions to come through, but I've seen the, now, are the products shown on this page, they, they have gluten? Because I see what looks like popcorn in the background. I thought popcorn had no gluten. Um, that's a really great question. Um, and the cornflakes also don't have. Yes, yes. Good call. Um, I may not have chosen the best picture here. <laughs> I think it meant to have a picture of bread, and but yes, but certainly yeah. the spaghetti. Oh, and, what, um, I bet Wendy. Um, <laughs> sorry, but yeah, pretzels and the tortillas. Okay. I think they'd be quite. Like, probably they often use corn flour as well, don't they? Um, yeah. Um, right. So these days, I encounter far more flour, wheat flour tortillas than I encounter corn tortillas. Okay. But, um, yeah. So, do, I mean, do you want to talk about gluten or do you want to go to questions? Or uh, uh, No, no, it's fine. It's fine. We can move on. Okay. Okay. Um, so, this is not something where I'm an expert, okay, at all. So, diabetes, kind of, yes. You know, the okay. gluten stuff, I'm still reading about it and still absorbing it. So, these are still um, some new ideas. I do have some colleagues who are um, very, very much dead set against gluten yes. um, in the diet. And there have been some very promising results of people resolving all kinds of conditions by taking out gluten from their diets. Yes. So, um, you know, one of the things that I mentioned earlier is that science has made great progress in increasing our yields of food and food availability. And, um, you know, nobody wants to return to conditions of famine or hunger or um, anything like that. But part of that has been um, by selectively breeding these very high-yield wheat crops. And one of them is this uh, dwarf wheat, where you can get, um, I believe, that you can get two crops per year. I'm, I'm not sure about that. I'll, I'll well, have I to think dwarf wheat would play a role with that as well, because they, that's one of wiping out the previous crop and getting it ready for the next crop. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. May not be a good thing. <laughs> right, right, right. So, um, yeah, yeah, all of these things really have to be um, balanced. But what's interesting about the uh, dwarf wheat is that it contains 40 to 50 times as much gluten as the more ancient, what's called the ancient wheat. And um, it doesn't mean that, you know, it's from back from, you know, the Egyptian era or something like that. It just means really, you know, pre-1950s wheat. <laughs> so people that are born... Before 1950, watching this now, you know that they, they, they'll they'll immediately shoot off their computers and go off in a in a, in a grumpy mood. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yes. Oh my yes, goodness. I know. <laughs> right. 
Um, In fact, I'm, I'm seeing a few of them have just left now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, so you didn't mean to insult anyone. I think the idea was that, that these were the wheat varieties that were used throughout history, and then suddenly... They were not used anymore. So there's, but, there's but 40 times the amount of gluten. That's absolutely remarkable. Were they bred for more gluten because that's that makes it easier to process? Mm, no, I don't believe so. You know, again, I'm getting a little bit outside my area, but I think um, you know the winter wheat. It, it um, you get more wheat per height. Okay. And so that enables you. It doesn't have to grow as long. So that enables you to get another crop in. So you can kind of harvest it early. Yes. Um, and I just, uh, yeah, I'm not sure really the role that gluten plays in that particular crop, but um, okay. this is what I've read at least. Yes, yes. So, you know, gluten, we know, is very sticky. So it's actually, you know, used in all kinds of things as, as a binder. But it definitely breaks down into peptides. And some of these peptides are known to be bioactive. And some of these are known to cross the blood-brain barrier and bind to, um, you know, some real pleasure centers in the brain. So, you know, I know personally I love or, you know, or used to love, um, you know, a wonderful piece of chokes. To me, that was like the ultimate comfort food. Um, and, you know, there's a reason why the brain might have, um, you know, processed that as, as um, comforting. But it also mean that some people really have become quite addicted to carbohydrates partly because of this gluten okay. potentially. Wow. But, um, you know, like I said, we're, I'm a little bit outside my area. Mm. So um, this is just a picture of some different um, versions of, of wheat and how it can vary in its height. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that's known about um, gluten is that one of the enzymes that's used to process it, um, people often, um, develop an uh, uh, antibody to it. And so celiac disease is people having a deep, um, an antibody, an autoimmune attack against this enzyme that reacts with gluten. Okay. So gluten ingestion will activate this autoimmune response um, and lead to a lot of downstream effects. So that's celiac disease. And that's about, at least in... Um, you know, sort of European populations, about one in 300 um, people. Um, less common in uh, African populations and Asian populations. But the other thing that can happen is that there's gluten sensitivity, and that's also an autoimmune kind of condition. And that's believed to be a much higher percentage of the population. So... Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. If can, yes. Uh, more people are becoming sensitive to gluten we've been told by previous experts on the show. Would you have a, any thoughts on that? Why that may be so? Yes. Um, well, it, one of the things that seems to happen is that many people seem to have a gluten threshold. And I think with gluten being used in more and more processed products, we're getting an exposure that we didn't get before. Um, there is some work where people have gone back to the more traditional grains and have made breads with them and have tested them on populations and have seen a number of biomarkers go down. Wow. Well, that's, that's yeah, Wolfgang has just passed the comment that, um, that uh, Davis's Wheat Belly book 
unconsciously yes. wheat we learned to digest through the millennia. And our yes. bodies have not become accustomed to the, the new modern varieties of wheat. And yes, exactly. That's one of the arguments that um, Davis makes. Absolutely. That is a good book. Interesting yes. book to read. Yes. So we're making progress, but we're making progress too quickly. We're just struggling to keep up. Right, right. Yes. Um, but causes so, local damage in the brain? Really, if you have gluten, when you're sensitive to gluten, is it an inflammatory response that's causing this damage? Um, I don't know too much about what happens in the brain. So one of the areas of my complete ignorance is what goes on in the brain. Um, first of all, I don't actually think that the biochemistry in the brain is well known in the first place. It's yes. complicated and it's hard to culture. You can't really grow brain cells in the lab. Like you can grow liver cells and blood cells. And we, have, we have difficulty and growing then, them in our skulls. Sorry? We have difficulty growing them in our skulls. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Lose them too frequently. Um, <laughs> and, and then there are lots of different kinds of brain cells and you know the neural networks and things so it's been pretty hard to study yes yes um and i've never really had the opportunity to you know take a class that taught me much about brain chemistry so i don't know a whole lot about what goes on in the brain okay. but there's significant anecdotal evidence and in fact some of the interesting research about um gluten came from psychologists and psychiatrists so normally, the way that research works is you kind of you know, do things in the biochemistry lab, and then you build on that, and then you take it to the population. But this came down from the other way. So people who were really just studying how people felt and how people responded, kind of coming up with some theories to say that there might be some interesting brain chemistry going on. And so people have seen a decrease in symptoms of a number of uh, mental illness disorders, uh, manic depressive. Um, schizophrenia, um, 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 you know, other things like um, uh, postmenopausal symptoms. Oops, my little thing went on there. Okay. Um, so, you know, these are difficult things to study in a lab setting or in a controlled clinical environment mm. study. So we really, all we have to go on is this kind of anecdotal evidence. It's pretty okay. powerful. Um, it's been repeated, you know, numbers, of, you know, many different times in many different patients. So I think there's something to it, something yes. to be elucidated, but it's too new. Well, it's terrific. And we're, we're 10 o'clock on the button, so we've done the two-hour mark. It's just been an amazing presentation. It's been fact-filled and very enjoyable. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed myself. Um, Wolfgang has been asking quite a few questions through this summer, and he's just given a, another suggestion now. It's a prime reference for brain chemistry. Uh, see Professor Scott Mumby. So he must be a researcher who's looked into brain chemistry. So uh, I'll do that later on. Thank, thanks for your input for today's summer, Wolfgang. It's been appreciated. And thank you for your patience. Some of his questions, I waited a little bit until the time was right for me to ask them. But thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Oh, you've done extremely well. I'm, I'm so pleased to have, I'm so pleased that you've accepted our invitation and come on board. Oh, I've enjoyed myself so much. It was really wonderful to meet you. I was, I was 
is it possible to arrange another one maybe a few months down the track because you cover some other areas which I'd like to go in a little bit more deep and in particular you did touch on weight loss and I know that's pandemic now obesity and so perhaps we can have a summer on specifically on weight loss and the type of things that you find work best because you're a very practical person you're not just going by books you're also going by personal experiences and I'd love to see I'd love to see your vision of the food pyramid because you haven't really at the moment carbs are still at the bottom it's still the big one and really that's going to be gone completely or pretty much uh, renegated to um, to a much smaller portion so I'd like or at least for people with our kinds of sedentary ish lifestyles so that's been fantastic having you on board thank you oh thank you thank you very much thank you have a a great week bye-bye bye-bye thanks so much